Welcome to the very first episode of David's Politics Show. Today I want to talk about Brexit. So Brexit has happened uh, officially, I guess you could say. You could argue that it happened in in a formal sense um, already at the beginning of uh, 2020, and then the transition period started. Now that now that transition period has ended, and um, the UK is uh, is out. Uh, there's a there's a new free trade deal between the UK and the rest of the EU, the Rump EU, I guess you could call it. Um, but uh, the separation is uh, is now complete. Obviously, um, here and there, a couple of things still need to be worked out. Um, but by and large, um, the deed is done. So, how do we take stock of, of this moment, and, and how do we how do we make sense of uh, this thing called Brexit, which was always a rather vague term? Um, you know, Theresa May, the previous uh, Prime Minister before. Boris Johnson um, took over, used to repeat ad nauseam this meaningless phrase, Brexit means Brexit, which of course just was designed to cover the fact that, you know, Brexit is, at least what was initially, an inherently ambiguous concept. It was a bit like Obama's yes, yes, we can. It kind of meant whatever, whatever you wanted it to mean. Uh, but now Brexit has kind of congealed into a, into a concrete shape, and it's a pretty hard one. Uh, it's uh, it's getting out of the single market, getting out of the customs union. Sure, there's a free trade deal which cuts, gets rid of the um, tariffs uh, and quotas. Um, but in terms of uh, access to to the European market, it's it's definitely not like not like it was before. The UK will almost certainly be poor in the long run. That's just in in the nature of things. Um, if you have uh, worse access, and by definition, you do have worse access if you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork which you didn't have to fill out before. Um, you will be poor. Having said that, uh, the UK certainly is, in a sense, more sovereign than it was before. Uh, it can uh, tweak its immigration policy with much greater freedom than it, than it could as a member of the of the EU. Uh, on agriculture, there are some things, some things it can do. Now, of course, part of what the free trade deal was was about was the EU trying to make sure that if the UK did move away from the EU's regulations on a number of things, labor market, environment, etc., that the UK would not continue to have the same access and thereby be at a competitive advantage. So, uh, so they have this this kind of arbitration mechanism. Um, that's designed to make sure that if the UK drifts away, uh, there will be a corresponding decrease in its access to the European market. Although, important point there is that the EU ultimately agreed that the arbiter will not be the European Court of Justice, uh, but some presumably independent third party. Now, of course, the Brexiteers would have been more honest if they had said from the beginning that Brexit would have entailed a loss of basically national wealth, uh, but that on the on the whole it was nonetheless worth it given the extra sovereignty they were they were going to get. That would have been the honest way of talking about it. They were largely dishonest in the sense that they tried to argue, as Boris Johnson famously repeated on and on, that you could have your cake and eat it too. In other words, you could you could get the extra sovereignty and also not pay the economic price. And that's just a flat-out lie, uh, and Boris Johnson certainly knew that. Some Brexiteers may have actually deluded themselves into thinking that that could really be the case, but uh, Boris Johnson knew better, and um, 
you know, that was that was certainly a somewhat tendentious uh, line of argumentation. Now, having said that, you know, we, we should also point out the Brexiteers were very obsessed with sovereignty in terms of being a member of the EU. And it is true that if you're a member of what is a quasi-confederal union, to some extent, uh, you're not as sovereign as if you are um, just sitting off as an as an island somewhere, and you're and you're not you're not a member of the union. You could argue in a way, you know, North Korea has a level of sovereignty which which obviously a member of the EU does not. Having said that, why only focus on the on the trade-off between complete freedom in a sense, libertarian almost freedom, and and your sovereignty as a member of a union or as a member of, any, of an international grouping when it comes to the EU. Why not also think about, for example, being a member of NATO, which the UK is and continues to be, right? If 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 the Russians were to attack the Baltic states, which is extremely unlikely to happen, but if that did happen and Article 5 was invoked and so on and so forth, the UK would be bound to go and fight a potentially nuclear war on behalf of a Baltic country that probably most people in Britain don't know where it is or don't even don't care about it don't know much anything anything much about it etc etc right so th- th- in that sense you're you're hugely committed to in and you're not completely sovereign because things as things depend on uh you know you, you're you're committed to a course of action which lies way beyond your your effective control but the brexiteers didn't, didn't complain one jot about that so there was a highly selective uh view of what exactly entails a loss of sovereignty and what doesn't. And you could say the same thing about being a member of the WTO or about pretty much any any international grouping that has some hard commitments. Now, having said all of that, it is true that the UK was very different from certainly the original members uh, of the EU and even the ones which were uh, which joined later in the, in the various enlargement phases. It has, it, it has had a different history, certainly with respect to the Second World War, which was a formative moment, at least in, in, intellectually, was the, was the kind of uh, jumping off point, obviously, for the idea of at least this kind of European Union. And it certainly has changed a lot uh, since its, its beginnings as a, as, a, as a steel and coal uh, community. Um, but certainly the UK was, didn't want to be part of it in the beginning, only joined in 73, uh, because economically it was, it was kind of a basket case and it really wanted to just, uh, get the economic benefits. It didn't really want to be part of the whole political project of an ever closer union, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, you could argue, you know, despite the silliness in some cases of the Brexiteers arguments and all of that, in, in a sense... There is some truth to the fact that the UK never felt comfortable in this grouping, except if it was an if it was a purely economic matter, which, however, it's it's not, or at least it's not in the quasi-religious ideology of the European Union, which sees itself as way more than just a huge single market or a large customs union, etc. And I'll come back to that uh, in just a few minutes when I talk about. Where the where the EU is 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 going to go uh, next, um, but there's a, there's an interesting kind of angle uh, from which you can look at the UK example, and that's the Swiss one. Think about it: the Swiss are right smack in the in the middle of what is undoubtedly, at least geographically, called Europe. 
but for a very long time they've uh, I mean pretty much since since uh, the uh, the restoration of Europe after after uh, the downfall of Napoleon in 1815 the restoration of Europe being a reference to um, Kissinger's book on the Congress of Vienna the Swiss have essentially thought of themselves as a separate people or a kind of exception to the uh, to, to what is what is going on um, around them they have a different sense of self they have a different sense of history just like just like the the British do and even though of course the Swiss have uh, are actually much more integrated into the EU single market than than is the UK now after post brexit um, nonetheless you know most most Swiss do not want to join the EU they want uh, to continue with the bilateral um, framework uh, possibly extended into a so-called framework agreement we'll, we'll have to see about that there hasn't been a referendum on that yet but uh, you know the Swiss the Swiss are, are simply not that interested in being full members um, of the European Union they'd like to be in the single market they have problems with immigration it's very similar to the to the UK case except the UK has chosen in a kind of rough and tumble way over the last four years um, to to leave and, 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 and to leave in a pretty in a, in a pretty hard way. So where does the where does the EU go from here? Well there are two two big challenges. One is what is what is especially now that the UK has left, what is the EU really all about? Is it just a large single market with the European Court of Justice just sitting there making sure, you know, goods can go from one market to another or not, put at a competitive disadvantage, etc. etc. Is it just a, some combination of that plus uh, a very large customs union? Uh, or is it something more than that? Is it supposed to be geopolitically important in some way? In which case, who, who, which country will pay for that? Which country will, will sacrifice some of its sovereignty in order to give it to a higher federal or confederal uh, institution? Whether that is the commission or something else. Uh, will the EU develop an army of its own? Will it develop a defense policy of its own which currently it doesn't have it keeps talking about little brigades here and there of the germans and the danes putting their two little tanks together but that's not a defense policy and the second large uh question i think looming on the horizon for the eu is what is the future of the euro relative to the european union as a whole the euro is a largely dysfunctional currency which has done terrible damage, especially to the economies of the South, for which it was not designed. Uh, it was the whole architecture of the euro was set up in an age in which inflation was high, and or potentially high anyway. People had still had concerns about it, and uh, budget budget deficits and interest rates were much higher. Therefore, budget deficits were more dangerous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We are now in a in what has been called. Uh, by Larry Summers, for example, the, the, the era of secular stagnation, of low inflation, low interest rates, uh, decrepit infrastructures, crumbling um, social safety nets, etc., etc. In that kind of an era, how exactly does the euro work, uh, and and what what attitude will Germany take um, to the development of the euro? I'm sure we'll come back to this in in, in future episodes. But I wanted to flag that now. As for the UK, well, it also, in my view, has two major challenges on the horizon. 
One is uh, its, its geopolitical positioning. Where exactly does it sit now in the grand scheme of things? Uh, sure, it's still a member of NATO and it has very, very close ties um, to, to both to um, its partners on the European continent and also to the, to the US, but it's no, longer going, it's no longer going to be in the decision-making halls of uh, Brussels. It won't be in the, in the rooms where things are decided in what is still a very important power block uh, in the world. It's just kind of off on its own, doing its own thing in in, um, in the North Sea, uh, and it's not exactly clear how it will find its place uh, in the world. And secondly, it's internal cohesion. Uh, after all, the UK is, I mean, it's full title, it tells you everything, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, which, by the way, has been kind of uh, semi- um, cut off in the sense that it's it will still be part of uh, the single market, um, or at least for for certain types of goods, and therefore is not actually in the same uh, regulatory domain, let's say, as um, the main island of Great Britain, namely England, Wales, and Scotland. So that so Brexit has already affected a kind of fixture. Uh, fissure in the in the cohesion of, of the UK but of course there's pressure from Scotland to secede uh, we'll have to see how the elections to the Scottish Parliament go um, this summer and um, more broadly the, the issue is can the UK continue to cohere as a as a functioning unit do the do the constituent nations of the UK still envision the same future for themselves? Or has Brexit been such a shock that they just don't, they don't share, they don't think, feel that they share the same, the same destiny? So um, that was uh, kind of where I think um, we are in terms of the Brexit situation uh, at the moment, both for the UK and the EU. I'm sure we'll come back to this uh, in future episodes. That was that's that's the that brings us to the end of the very first one and I hope you'll come back for future episodes. Until then, bye-bye.